Good morning, Grace. We are continuing our series today on uh, title Refocus, and if you're new with us, uh, this series is a series, especially going into fall, that kind of helps us refocus ourselves on what's important and what's significant in life. And, and our mission statement as a church is what we're focusing on really through the month of August, different aspects of it. In your worship guide, you can see it written there. I'm just going to recite it for you. I had you all recite it last week. I won't make you do that again, but I might quiz you afterwards. So if I catch you coming out, I may get you. But, but our mission is to lead our city into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. Last week, we talked about the aspect of a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ and what that looks like, that it's a result of love. First, God's love for us, and then how that love poured out into our hearts results in a love that we have for him because of what he's done for us. And it's love that leads to transformation. Oftentimes we get that flipped around. We think if we obey God and follow all the rules, then he'll love us. That's what religion teaches us. But Christianity teaches us that God loved us in a way that was so unimaginable that, he, that through that love and his salvation for us, now we can't help but want to love him back. And so it's our love that leads to obedience rather than our obedience to love. That's what we focused on last week. And that Jesus used two metaphors, and one of them kind of captured that when he talks about his people or the church. He said, you're the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Salt, uh, he said, talks about our internal characteristics. And if you lose your saltiness, then of what value are you? Meaning if we lose our love for Jesus and we're no longer being transformed, how are we of value if we don't have that internal saltiness? That's what makes us unique as Christians. But the light part talks about our external position. So the salt is our internal character. As we grow in love for Jesus, we're going to be transformed in obedience to him. And the light talks about our external position. He says you don't light up a lamp and stick it under a basket or hide it in the corner. You put it in the midst of the darkness in order to light up everything around it. So today and the next few weeks, we're going to focus on the light aspect of who we are as a church. That God has placed us in our community to be a light in dark places. And oftentimes as Christians... We kind of like to gather together and just stay here in this safe little environment instead of being sent out to have an impact in our community. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Romans chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today, Romans chapter 10. Uh, if you're new to your Bible, there's some chair, Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Romans is shortly after the Gospels, so you can go through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you're going to hit the, gospel, uh, the book of Acts, and right after Acts is Romans. I want uh, you to see this passage because it's a great one to go back to, and it's going to give us some simple truths about being sent. Romans 10 is where we're going to be today. Uh, I'll, I'll also have the passages up on the screen. You can follow along with us there. So if you pray with me, and we'll jump in and, and take a look at this truth today. Father, thank you for your word that we have the privilege of opening up each week together as your church. And my prayer, as it is often each week, uh, for us as a church, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And that the things that you share with us today through your Holy Spirit uh, would be applied in our lives uh, throughout the week, Lord, that we would recognize that we are to be a holy people and a sent people, a salty people and a people who give off light into our city. 
And I pray you'll use these truths to equip us as your church to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was at a conference uh, uh, several weeks ago or months ago, and, and one of the things one of the presenters shared in regards to a certain ministry that he was relating to was an acronym that really struck me as very fascinating and so true. And as I was thinking about uh, this message this week, I happened to come across my notes sitting there, and I saw this acronym and again. I thought it really applies not just to the specific topic he was talking about, but it applies to our life in a very practical way. So I want to share it with you today. The acronym is FASTER. You can write this down in your notes. In fact, I'd encourage you to because I think it's pretty insightful. You'll probably appreciate it as much as I do. He, he uses this as a, a concept in our lives that often leads to us making poor choices or getting distracted. And we go faster and faster and faster. And the faster we go, the more distracted we get. And it often leads to us making really poor choices or falling back into old bad habits that we once used to have. So I'm going to tell you what the Ackerman needs and I'll, I'll connect it to our message today. So F means you forget your priorities. That's kind of where this all starts. And our series is about refocusing on our priorities. Well, the first thing that happens in this transition of getting faster and faster is we lose sight of what's most important. And keep this in mind. The enemy of most important is not least important. The enemy of best is not ever worst. The enemy of what's best is always what's good. You will be distracted by lots of good things that'll prevent you from doing the absolute best things. That's what often challenges our priorities. And this is where we start, is we start with this forgetting our priorities. We forget what's important and we start welcoming other things in our lives. The next thing that happens is the A, anxiety. As we forget what's important and, and and doing that, one of the things we struggle with is we struggle saying no. And we forget that every no is attached to a yes. When I say no to this opportunity out there, I'm saying yes to my family or to my church or to Jesus or something else. A no is always attached to a yes. And so when we can't do that, oh, this opportunity looks so good, that looks so good, oh, my kids need to be over here, oh, they should really be engaged with that. Suddenly, we, if we forget our priorities, we start saying yes to everything, which really results in saying no to what's really most important to us, and anxiety is sure to follow. We start getting anxious, because like, how am I gonna fit all these things in? The next one, the S, is we speed up. Of course, right? Don't stop doing all these good things that we have available to us. I mean, we gotta keep doing that. So I'm just gonna go faster so I can fit more into my day and fill more up with my life. That's what we tend to do, we speed up. Then after we speed up, the next one is we get ticked off. Why does everyone expect me to do all this stuff? Why do I have so much stuff to do? Why do I, you know, we get upset. We start to get a little angry. The next one is E. We become exhausted trying to keep up with everything that we feel like we have to do. And then the last one is relapse. Now, this was used in the context of, a, of a, an addiction type ministry, but the, really the pattern is true for all of us. It could be a relapse into a bad habit that we've already had, or it can be a step into a bad habit for the very first time. 
You get to that last point of exhausted, and rather than addressing what we need to, we want to escape. We try to escape our life, and we do this, or we do that, or we step down these different paths of things that we would never have done before. They aren't even part of who we are, and we don't even know how we got there. And we make a choice that's totally off the tracks from what we want our life to be. Now, here's the problem. Most of the time, and most of the counsel in life faces those last five. When we face these things, we try to deal with the anxiety. We try to deal with speeding up. Oh, maybe we just need a vacation for a week. That'll slow us down, and that's great for that week, but then we jump right back into it. We try to get some anger management classes. We try to get a good night's rest. That'll take care of our exhaustedness or whatever it may be. We address all of those symptoms, but we don't address the cause. That's what we're talking about this month. We're refocusing. We're narrowing down what is it that's most important in life. And if you're a, a believer, then God's told us what that is. It's our mission, our purpose for him. Everything else that we do doesn't mean that it has no importance. It's secondary to what's most important. And that's what we focus on and focus on as a church. And so as we re revisit these things, my hope is that we'll, we'll be able to refocus on what's truly important, narrow our focus a little bit, and be on track with what God's wanted us to do. So here's what we're gonna look at in our passage today. Two things I want you to see out of Romans chapter 10. First of all is what is the situation? And the second is how can we address it? What is the situation that we find ourselves in as a church, in our community, in your home, in your neighborhood, wherever you might be? What's the situation that we face and how can we address it? Now, in order to answer these questions, I'm gonna have to jump back a little bit in Romans to give you some context, so just follow along with me. We're gonna focus on chapter 10, but let me give you a little context to Romans. Prior to chapter 10, there is nine other chapters. But let me read this passage first out of Romans 1. It kind of gives us a general, a, Paul, a statement Paul makes that talks about the general situation of the world that we find ourselves in. It says, for the wrath of God, Paul says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul's talking about mankind in a, in a general sense. That This is what's happening right now. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. It's revealing against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, because we by nature suppress the truth. How? Well, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So what Paul is saying here is that God's made himself plain to us simply by creation. That every human being, and all of us do this to a degree, we can look out and go, wow, that is incredible. And no baby, no child, no person for, at, when they start life goes, wow, that must have all happened by some crazy little accident. See, we come to those conclusions by suppressing the truth. We don't want anyone 
an authority over us. We don't want to acknowledge anyone else. Those are all ideas that, that come from us suppressing the truth because that's not naturally what we do in one sense uh, of seeing those things. We don't say those kinds of things, but we suppress that. And so he says, so they are without excuse. We're without excuse for that. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is a, a, a statement about the general condition of mankind. It's a very general statement. But I want to take these general truths and make them very specific for us today. I want to relate them to your home, your neighborhood, and our city. Because these apply to us. So my first point for you is, is simply this. Every type of person in my community needs to be saved. Every type of person in my community needs to be saved. We're all lost, every single one of us. If you continue in the book of Romans, you'll see that Paul gets into chapter three and he, he reiterates this in another way. He says, there is none who is righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. That's not our nature. We would rather do things our own way and we are broken as a result and it started after the garden it started in the garden even with Adam and Eve and their choices so what we need to begin to see is what the situation is and the situation is this that religious people wealthy people well-connected people educated people important people unimportant people rich people poor people every single type of person in our city needs to be saved there's not some who are okay and others who we need to focus on as a church. Every single person needs to be saved. And whether they're close to us or not, our affection and our love for a particular group of people or even our own family, I don't care how much you love your family, I don't care how much I love my family, my love for my family and my desire for them to be in heaven with me has zero impact on whether they'll be there or not. If they don't realize they need to be saved, I can love them until I'm blue in the face and it'll make no difference. God plays no favorites. He has no tios or tias. He has no grandchildren. He only has children. Either you have come to become a child or you haven't. And that's the state of everyone in our city. Now, until you come to that recognition, you'll lack a meaningful and life-guiding priority in your life. If we don't see this as as important as the Bible makes it to be, then you will spend your whole life chasing other things that aren't necessarily bad, they're just secondary. They'll never fulfill you the way God wired you and saved you to be fulfilled. Because everything else we could possibly pursue will be lost. It's going to be gone. You're going to lose it all either at your death. You, sometimes you're going to lose it sooner than that. But eventually it's going to be gone and burned up in this world. And the only thing that's going to last is what God says is eternal. That's him. It's his word. And it's his people. 
so we can be part of that as a church and have a meaningful life as a result, have purpose. The second what we can see in this, that's the bad news, but the good news is we can see that uh, Paul says in chapter 10, as we talk about it here, he says this, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, meaning Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction. Now notice he's talking about the universal aspects here. He says everyone. He says for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That was how they divided up the world then. The Jews were kind of the religious people. The Greeks were the irreligious, even though they had all kinds of their own religions. He says for it's the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul's given us the great news here. The bad news is we all need to be saved. The good news is everyone who believes on him will be saved. So here's my second point, putting it in a personal way. Any type of person in my community could receive eternal life. Any type of person in my community could receive eternal life. You see, the reason Paul says in this passage anyone can be saved is because salvation is not based on our accomplishments, It's not based on our genealogy. It's not based on your socioeconomic class. It's not based on your race. It's not based on any of those things. It's based on the Lord Jesus Christ, on the work and the willingness of Jesus to bestow his grace on all who call on him, Paul says in verse 12. You see, that leads us to this conclusion that no one in our city is too good to not need saving. And there's not one person in our city that's too bad or so bad that they cannot be saved. It's pretty wide arms that our Savior has, as wide as they can possibly be for our city. In fact, it's funny, it's often those who appear good who appear accomplished, who appear wealthy, who appear connected in our city, they are the biggest obstacles to our city coming to Jesus. See, our mindset is typically this. Well, it's that the drugs that go through here and, and the prostitution that's associated with it and all these cr- crimes and the, the things that are going on. Man, that's the, that's the problems in our city. And, and no doubt those are problems. But you know, when Jesus walked the earth, those were not the people that caused the most problems with people coming to Jesus. It was the rich, the religious, the well-connected, the wealthy. Those were the ones that were the greatest hindrance to Israel's faith. It was the Pharisees and the lawyers and, and a lot of those people. Why? Because people thought they were good, thought they were okay. And most of us, when we start out on life, we look at people like that and we go, man, I hope I can get to be like that. If I can just get to be like that, then I'm going to be okay. We think that that is good. See, no one's born and said, and, and then when they're in their kindergarten class the first day and the teacher says, okay, kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't, I've never seen a paper like that that says, well, I want to be a drug dealer. I want to be a prostitute. I like, to, I like to steal until I get thrown in jail. Yeah, that would be a good opportunity for me. See, everyone knows that those things are wrong, even the people that are doing it. 
Often they're doing it because in life they didn't think they had many other options or that's what they'd always seen and so they just kind of fall into it many times. But what's more dangerous is people who are religious, wealthy, well-connected and appear to be doing good things in our city but they think that that makes them above needing to be saved. Those are the people that are the most dangerous to revival in our city, just like it was in Jesus' time. Those were the people that Jesus had the harshest and strongest words for because they thought they were okay. That's why we see so many prostitutes and, and, and people that were in the lowest part of society coming to faith in Jesus because for the first time, they weren't being told, unless you get up here like us wealthy and religious people, unless you become like us, you're not gonna be close to God. They found out that being close to God had nothing to do with their background or their present circumstance. It had everything to do with whom they placed their faith in. And that was Jesus Christ. Any type of person in my community could receive eternal life. So that's the what. Now we get to the how. And what I love about this passage and I love about God is as majestic and as amazing as he is, he's always very practical and down to earth and makes it very simple for people like us to follow him. It's not easy, but it is simple. And so he's going to give us four little steps here in the how that we can follow through here. And, and he's going to answer them with four different questions. So look at this next section as we move to the next section of Romans chapter 10 and, and, and follow his argument. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I pulled that from the first one. Keep that in mind. He's talking about calling on the name of the Lord results in salvation. And now Paul's going to use that little metaphor uh, later as well, he says, how then will they call on him? So calling on him means saved. How will they be saved in whom they have not believed? So how can we be saved if we haven't believed in someone? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So four hows we're going to look at here in a minute. It says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. So let's look at this passage now and work our way through these four hows that Paul gives us from the very beginning. So go to the next slide and we'll see. I'm going to highlight them as we go through it. So the first one is, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So I want to personalize these again. I'm going to use the phrase call on him because of the first verse, meaning if you call on him, you'll be saved. So Paul's just using what they call a metonymy, one equals the other. So how will they be saved in a sense or call on him in whom they have not believed? So here's my point for you and for our community. In order to be saved by Jesus, my community must trust in him. In order to be saved by Jesus, my community must trust in him. Now, I tend to flip some words in the Bible around a little bit, so don't call me a heretic yet. Let me explain it, and I'll tell you why. One of the confusing words, and I'm not saying a confusing word in the Bible, I'm saying a confusing word in the English Bible, because these are translated from what the Bible was originally written in, which was Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. But in the original language, the, the word for believe 
meant uh, uh, and in terms of our English word is more closely related to the word trust. Now it probably fit with believe when they first wrote most English Bibles, it's just kind of been carried over. But nowadays, when we use the word believe, it often becomes synonymous with no. Right, you ever said, that? Oh, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, I believe in, in God, or yeah, I believe that's a chair over there. You could transfer that and say, I know about Jesus, I know about God, I know that's a chair. It becomes an intellectual thought or knowledge. But the original word in the Greek for believe, that's not how it was used. That's not the emphasis in which the apostles, when they wrote it, intended. It meant more like our English word trust. So I often use that word in substitution when it's referring to salvation. Let me describe that a little bit. I've done this before, but this is so important. I can believe that that's a chair, or I can know that that's a chair, and that's great, that's factual knowledge. But if I trust that it's a chair, and it's sturdy enough to be a chair, what am I willing to do? Sit in it, right? You see the difference between knowing and trusting? If I trust in it, I'm willing to rely on it. And that's what the disciples mean when they say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't just know, oh yeah, I heard that story. I I believe Jesus is a person. I know he was. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, yeah, but are you trusting in him as your savior? And that's what Paul is talking about here. How can they be saved if they haven't trusted in him? They must trust in him. See, if I'm trusting in my own good works, or I'm trusting in my own religious deeds, or I'm trusting in the church that I go to to be my salvation, then you're not saved. If you don't realize that Jesus is the Savior, not your good deeds, not your religious devotion, not your church, not your pastor, whatever you want to put in there, Jesus is the Savior, then you haven't been saved. And that's what Paul's talking about. How can they believe in him? How can they be saved if they haven't trusted in him? See, I think there's two key things, and I put this in your your notes, so follow along with me. I think there's two simple aspects. I think it's important that we have something nailed down, but I think the Bible doesn't go into too much detail here, but you can get too narrow and just say, hey, I believe in a Jesus or some kind of Jesus, but it's not a Jesus of the Bible. I think there's some key things that you have to have nailed down in order for your faith to be in Jesus in a saving faith. One is you have to believe that Jesus is worthy of being the Savior. You have to believe something about the quality or the character of your Savior. You see, you could believe in Chad McCartney for your salvation, and you could believe all you want, but my life is not worthy to save you from any one of the sins that you committed because I'm a sinner just like you are. So it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It doesn't matter how much you're willing to follow what I teach. I'll never save you because the quality of my nature is not savior material. You have to know something about Jesus, enough about Jesus to know that he is your sinless savior, that he is only savior worthy. No one else is. The second thing you, I think you need to know or trust in is that his life, death, and resurrection are your satisfactory substitute. 
that it's his life, the Bible, this is the gospel, this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus' life exchanged for yours. He gets your sin, you get his righteousness. See, when you understand that truth, that's what melts your heart, that's what blows you away. When, when you begin to understand how broken you are and how much he loved you, and not just said he loved you, but showed it by taking the consequences that your sin and my sin deserved so that you and I could receive the consequences of his perfect sinless life, which is eternal life. That's what salvation is. It's trusting in him for doing that for you and me. How will they be saved if they haven't trusted in him. Second thing Paul says in here is, is he continues here uh, down that line. You're going to see the next how. He says, and how are they to believe in him um, whom they have never heard? So how can they call in someone whom they haven't trusted in? They've got to trust in someone, but before they can even trust in them, how can they trust in him of whom they have never heard? That's a great question. Here's my, my statement. In order to trust in Jesus, my community must hear about him. In order to trust in Jesus, my community must hear about him. Paul says later in that va- passage, he kind of puts it in, in, in very simple terms. Uh, if you go back to the next slide, please. Uh, go down to the next one. I think it, there we go. So this is, there's our statement up there, but look what he says down at the bottom. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? They need to hear because faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We often think, and and this is where we struggle a little bit nowadays, we think faith is just something that we muster up inside us, that it's detached from anything else. I just got to have more faith. Okay, how do you do that? You ever have someone say, you know what, you just need to have more faith. I mean, how do you do that? Do you kind of grunt a little bit? Mm, I think I'm having more faith now. Is that more? Now am I having more? How do you get that extra faith? This is the beauty of the Bible. The Bible tells us how you get more faith. It's not by you mustering something up. It's by you seeing something that is faith-worthy. You see, faith does not save you. Jesus Christ saves you. The means by which Jesus Christ saves you is through faith. Meaning, when you trust in him, a trustworthy object, you're going to be saved. So how do you get more faith? Well, you look more at the one who is faith-worthy. See, many of us have very little faith because we know very little about the person of Jesus Christ. But the more you know about him, the more you're going to trust him. You can't help but trust him more as you learn more about him. But we got to hear about him. This is why we do much of what we do every single week. We come back here because I believe in, in the way of salvation and faith, these things, that trust and love are kind of the same thing when it comes to Jesus. The more you trust him, the more you love him. The more you love him, the more you trust him. So faith comes through hearing, love comes through hearing. So we gather here every week to hear more about Jesus, and my hope is every single week that you go home loving him more, trusting him more.
every time you hear about him. The next thing we see in this path is, is another how. So he goes to the next one. Uh, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? So they can't believe in someone they've never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? So here's our third one in this, this line, is in order to hear about Jesus, we must speak about him. In order to hear about Jesus, we must speak about him. Now, let me help you understand this word preach. Again, that's an English word we use. Uh, it's translating a Greek word. It's not necessarily isolated to a word that means a sermon like we often use preaching today. What Paul is not saying is the only way a person can be saved is if they come to our church and hear a preacher preach to them. No, the word means in a general sense that you say something or proclaim something in a public way. That could be as simple as, as an individual thought you have in your head and you're sitting with another person, one other person, and then rather than you just thinking it in your head, you say it out loud. You've preached it. You've suddenly made it public. You don't have to stand on a street corner and scream to a hundred people or a thousand people in order to be a preacher. That's not what this passage is saying. It's simply saying someone has to make this truth public in order for someone to hear about him. One of the things we have to do as Christians is avoid the extremes that we often go to. And one of the common extremes we fall into as Christians is the good deeds versus good news debate. People will want to see our lives before they hear our message. We like to say that a lot. And there's some truth to that. We don't want to make one more important than the other, but we often do. We often say, hey, if I'm not living the life, then I shouldn't speak the truth. Well, that's not necessarily true. That's not what Paul's saying here. He doesn't say, until people see your lives, how are they going to believe in Jesus until they see your lives? He doesn't make one mention of that in this passage. He only says this, how are they to be saved if they never hear? You see, the only way a person can be saved is to hear the gospel. In fact, they could see the gospel in your life 365 days of the year for 85 years if the Lord gives you 85 years. They could see you living out the gospel in your life that whole time period and it would never save them. Because living the gospel doesn't save anyone. You have to share it. In fact, simply saying, I'm just going to live the gospel, even as, as a common or a famous quote goes, hey, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's a famous quote that's often used by camps that say it's all about our deeds, and, and if you have to use words, do it, but let your life speak the gospel. I'm, I'm not saying our lives shouldn't reflect the gospel. They absolutely should. But don't take something that's not true in the scriptures and make it true. Your gospel living life will not save one person. It doesn't mean it's not important, but it won't save anyone. In fact, the greatest form of plagiarism in the whole world is a holy life that never tells anyone about why it's holy. 
You see, when your life is just filled with good things and good deeds and gospel living, you glorify yourself. It's the most self-righteous form of living you could possibly live. Because who gets all the credit for your good deeds, for your holy living? Certainly not Jesus, because you're unwilling to tell anyone that the only reason you are like you are is because he changed your life. I'm going to try to make a point, and don't take this too literally, but I would rather have a whole bunch of broken down, constantly falling over their feet sinners in our church that can't wait to tell others about Jesus than the holiest people in our city who never say a word about who saved them. Give me the biggest misfits in our city who can't help but tell other people about what Jesus did over the holiest people in our city any day of the week. Now, I'm making a false dichotomy, but my point is this. No one will ever be saved unless we open our mouths and tell them about him. Don't make it so much about you because it's not about us. Let's move on. Last thing, Paul says this. How are they to preach unless they are sent? How are they to preach or how are they to tell someone unless they are sent? Again, you're telling someone, you're proclaiming something publicly. So if you're, not to say you should never do this, but if you're in, in, in your bathroom every morning and you're practicing sharing the gospel in the mirror, okay, that's great news. But if you stay in the bathroom all the time and you only say it into the mirror to yourself, no one's ever going to benefit from that. So Paul's saying, how are they going to hear it unless someone is sent? Unless you leave the salt shaker and let your light shine before men, no one will ever be impacted by your life. Impacted at least by the gospel and pointed toward the person of Jesus Christ. We have to be sent. That's part and parcel of who we are. I, I know maybe you've heard this illustration said a lot about people, or people use it a lot saying, hey, when God created you, he gave you two ears and one mouth, right? And then the, and the next line is, the reason he did that is because he wants you to listen twice as much as he wants you to talk. Man, if we just followed that guideline, it would probably save us a lot of problems. But let's just take that metaphor and, and carry it over into another realm. And when God arranged things even from the beginning with the Old Testament and then it transferred into the New Testament, God kind of created a pattern of a rhythm for us as his people to gather together as his people one day of the week and to be scattered for six days of the week. Now, I don't want to put words in God's mouth, but I know that God never does anything without good intention. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows why he does it. Maybe, just maybe, he wanted us to be scattered for six days and gathered for one day because the sentness of our mission is of incredibly great importance. That he says, gather for one, but be scattered and sent for six. See, when we gather, 
this should be a time that fans our love for Jesus, that fans our love for God. So much so that when we leave here, we can't help but want to share that with the people in our lives. And it doesn't mean we stop worshiping when we leave this place. No, this is a unique type of worship when we gather and we fan that, that love for God and we hear about him and we're reminded of it and it's a great rhythm. But when we leave, maybe, just maybe, our sentness and our sharing in the world in which we place is a form or a reminder that our work and where God has sent us in our city is an extremely important aspect of our worship, just as our gathering is. You see, the word sent means to be dispatched toward a certain goal or purpose. That's what we are, church. We are sent into our city. And no matter how holy a life you're living, and I'm making a dichotomy, but, but hear me on, no matter how holy or good a life you're living, if you don't tell anyone about Jesus, no one will ever be saved through your life. No one will ever be saved through your witness. You see, your holy living can broaden your impact, it can deepen your impact, it can do a whole lot of things and it's part of the package, but it'll never save anyone unless they hear about Jesus Christ. You have to be sent. We need to share it. When Jesus came to earth, he did not come as a superhero. He didn't come as a CEO or an NFL superstar or a world leader or some famous star. He, he came as a baby. He grew little by little into a young man. and He worked as a carpenter, a very simple, hands-on, blue-collar type of a job, nothing prestigious. That's how he came. He lived in a little podunk city called Nazareth that most people didn't even know where it was and rarely did anyone ever pass through it. He was born in a little town called Bethlehem. Yet he turned the world upside down. But you know what didn't make him so impactful? It wasn't his humanity that made him so impactful. It wasn't that he'd been born in the right spot or he'd been born to the right family or he had the right career path or he was in the right socioeconomic level or that his education made him impactful. It wasn't any of those things that made him have such an incredible impact on our world. There was one thing. It was his sentness. The fact that he was sent. You say, well, wait a minute, Chad. He was, I mean, he was God. Obviously, that's what made him have such impact. Not really. I mean, that helped. But that's not what made him have an impact in our world because Jesus was already God well before he came into this world. Jesus could have been holy. He could have remained majestic. He could have been all-powerful. He could have received all glory. He could have had all those things and remained all those things in heaven because he'd had them for all eternity past. But had he stayed there, then all of us would have been doomed 
to an eternal separation forever without him. So what gave him the impact that he had in this world? One thing. He was sent. He came. And he didn't just preach the good news. He became the good news. Jesus wasn't just sent to us in this world. Jesus was spent for you and me. He spent his whole life. He spent himself to purchase for you and me something that you and I could never have earned. So let me ask you, if, if he was willing to be spent for you and me, is it really that much for us to be sent for him? Let me just close with a few simple, practical applications of how we could maybe do this. One, one we already kind of introduced a little bit. As you sang some of our songs earlier, I asked you to think about a person you'd like to invite to the table. Who did you see sitting in that chair? When you sang that song, who were who you singing it to? Who were you wanting to invite to the table? Because I want to ask you to begin seeing yourself as one who is sent to that person. I'm not saying you stop doing nice things for them or loving them in that way, but, but will you t tell them? Are you willing to start a conversation that lets them know that they are welcome, not because of anything they've done. Maybe they're thinking that it's all their junk that, that doesn't let them come to the table. And maybe the best thing you can do is say, you know what, I have a bunch of junk as well. I still have junk. I don't get to come to the table because I'm holy and worthy in and of myself. I get to come because my Savior purchase that spot for me. And he has a spot for you as well if you'll trust him. Maybe for you it's just beginning your day with a mindset of what your greatest priorities are and refocusing at the beginning of the day. I remember a few weeks ago, Bill Allison came and spoke and he gave us this neat little disciples prayer. Maybe you have that card still. The, the concept is that we begin our day focusing on the priority that you and I are sent into this world with a mission. That is the most important thing we could do every single day of the week. When we're at school, when we're at work, when we're in our neighborhoods, when we're in our homes, you are on a mission. And when you refocus on those things, you'll begin to remove some of the things that aren't nearly as important and find a deeper, purposeful fulfillment in the things that are. What if you just began your day with that? What about conversations? What if you saw your workplaces, your schools, your neighborhoods as places that you were sent to? 
And here's one of the things we struggle with as Christians. We often think, well, I'm not successful unless I get the sale when I make this. And so we become like a, a cheesy salesman, right? Those guys that come to the door and it doesn't matter what you say. You don't, I don't need a, a big orange tube that can suck the dust out of my attic. I mean, they just tell me all these things and they're trying to get you. They're not going to leave until you buy it. They annoy us. But you know what? Then we become the same way as Christians trying to get the sale with people. What if instead we just love them and listen and let God do the work in their life? What if we see them like we see ourselves? As maybe at one point, and then we all were, we were a long way from Jesus, and no matter what people said, even when they brought it up, it offended us. And if, if this is a scale across our stage, and here's where a person trusts in Christ, that's where they're perfect and at home with Christ at the eternity, and here's where they are when they're far, far away from Christ. And we try to take them from here to here in one conversation. And maybe all you need to do is take them from here to here. And then the next time you see them, you ask some more questions. You love them. You talk to them. You listen to them. And maybe you share just a little bit more about your life and maybe what Jesus did in your life. And oh, now maybe they're over here. What if we learn to see people the way Jesus sees them and spend time with them the way he did, leading them to that spot where maybe the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and we get to witness this birth as well. Church, we are a unique people in our community, sent to share this gospel. No one else in our community but the church has this message. And Paul gave us these simple little steps to refocus on our mission and remember why Jesus left us here after he saved us. Let's pray.